Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering six conversations from Season 3, Episode 27, our wrap-up of the Fifth Global Nash Congress that took place in London on May 27th and 28th. This conversation includes the first half of the episode wrap-up, which Jorn, Louise, and I conducted. It starts with Louise identifying several of the papers she found most important or interesting in the conference. The patient advocacy presentations from Global Liver Institute and the European Liver Patients Association. Stan Frank's talk on vascular alterations with Nash and Nash cirrhosis. Scott Harris's discussion on dual agonist weight loss medications. William Alawazi's Friday keynote about items that can confound trials. And the general drug developer roundtable. This leads Jorn to discuss questions about the liver vascular bed and how it is different from other vascular beds in the body and his enthusiasm in research on this topic. Jorn also notes and Louise picks up on the idea that portal pressure might have a different impact on Nash cirrhosis compared to other etiologies of cirrhosis. This conversation ends discussing the primary care programs in Europe, the GRIP program discussed here, and the Liver Screen Consortium. The Fifth Global Nash Congress brought together industry, academic, and patient advocates in a forum that covered an array of issues and perspectives. We've tried to bring you an assortment of these in the episode 27 conversations. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. So with that, Fifth Global Nash Congress, I guess about 30, 35 speakers. This episode, you will hear portions of interviews that Louise and Rachel did with some of the various speakers. And, but Louise, before I do that, let me ask you to comment a little bit about what you thought was most intriguing about the conference and of the interviews that you did and the speakers that you interviewed, who you thought brought the most interesting thing or perspective to the party. Louise Campbell. No, I thought it was an interesting conference for multiple reasons. It's one of those conferences, because of its size, the sponsors get to present. And actually, that's really quite nice in some respect, because it's nice to know what they do and what they're about and why they got into the space and what they're bringing to the space. We don't get that at Easel or Arzold or any of the bigger meetings. So there is a little bit more integration of industry, physicians and scientists, which is quite a nice mix. This year, they also had two patient representatives. They had Jeff McIntyre from GLI do a presentation, and they also had Marco Kronjuk, I think his name is, from the European Liver Patients Association, and he is always an entertaining speaker. He comes with such passion. When I attended it before lockdown and COVID pandemic, that was the one thing that I commented that was missing. I think last year it was also missing, and I made another comment on that. So it is nice to see it here this year, and I think people responded to it. They were both on the first day and they followed each other. So there was a nice sequence of events. I personally enjoyed Sven Frank's vascular alterations in Nash and Nash cirrhosis. And he'd alluded to some of this in a small amount of his presentation when he was in Barcelona at the recent meeting that Jeff Lazarus and Jean hosted. But he didn't expand. This one was probably more about the expansion of that into potential portal hypertension and how even small amounts of fat in the liver actually change the parenchyma and the sort of liver consistency in tissue. And I've said before, and I and I think I've said when I was discussing it earlier, that I think that's something that we might be able to see in fasting, non-fasting differentials in Fibroscan at an earlier date, at an early time point. Certainly in Barcelona, had that discussion with Lauren Sanderin, and he was of a similar thinking. Generally, the ability semaglutide data was presented. There was some interesting stuff on diet and the makeup of that. And Scott Harris um, from Ultimune, I spoke to, and we'll be playing some of his input from that. He was very enlightening about the diet, and some, although that we do know 
know there's micro and macronutrient deficiencies. We haven't worked out are they particularly relevant, but was the sum up of that one. And on the Friday morning, there was William Alawazi, who unfortunately I wasn't able to catch up with to do an interview, but I hope to do something later. And his was emerging approaches to NASH and treatment strategies. He came with different aspects to the recent conference in Barcelona, but very much in line with sort of challenging some of the thinking that we're doing now, particularly, and Jean will have a, a view on this, on the placebo line of all of these trials in the context that we still include people in the placebo line that are on medications that can affect their liver, pyoglitazone, metoclopramide, and metformin, all of those other ones that we know may well affect people's liver. And really, should we be including those in clinical trials? And that was followed by a clinical trial roundtable where several Madrigal were there and some of the others. And that was a, an interesting debate, a panel discussion, because Scott Harris actually hosted it. And there was Sven, there was Paul Boots from Galactin and Hamona Sarek from doing that. And then Rebecca Taub was asked to comment from the floor because, of course, Madrigal have had some very good resmitron. So she was talking about it as well from that aspect. So there's a good roundtable discussion. Jörn Schattenberg. Louise, there's a number of things that resonate with me when you do this summary. And I agree with you that it, this particular conference is special because you have uh, sometimes the chief medical officer of a company that runs the trial speaking up. Uh, normally you don't get those. Either they have a presentation given by one of their investigators or somebody else. So I agree. I think they being deeply involved with the trial and, and the definitions of endpoints and their own drugs, it's an interesting perspective. And I agree with you that Sven Frank is always a great person to reflect on the importance of comorbidities here. And if I understood you correctly, he picked up on the concept that we discussed one or twice where we are starting to worry about liver disease in patients with NAFLD. The liver endpoints that are going to be relevant for drug approval are going to come up an advanced population, okay? So that's why we enrich those in clinical trials these days, F2 or even more so F3 if you think of the New England Journal paper. But that had only four years of follow-up. So if you follow those patients a little longer, you also see it in the F2s. And the ones that are earlier, they have serious medical conditions and we got to take care of those. It's just not the liver physician that's probably the right person to do that. But the liver physician, as you rightly fully pointed out, could be the one to identify the metabolic risk by using an ultrasound or an transient elastography device and counseling the patient. So I think that concept holds up uh, through a number of discussions we've had now. And from a personal perspective, I think that's very important. It, it empowers the patient. Yeah. And these vascular changes early in that NASH development, even before fibrosis has developed, are actually probably more important cardiovascularly, as you say, and in other related illnesses. But what he was very positive about is if you are able to alter the liver structure and get rid of the fat at that stage, it does come back to normal. So in those mild vascular changes, if you repair and remove the liver fat, the structure goes back to normal, which is really encouraging because we always talk about regeneration. And when does it lose its ability to regenerate? Some of the figures would suggest very late cirrhosis rather than late F3 and early F4, but we don't know. Maybe that's an area for further development and research losing that elasticity completely. There's one more thought I want to hook up on uh, before, Roger, I'm handing it back to you, is that, you know, the vascular bat in the liver is not a typical bat, a vascular bat as we see it with endothelial lining and the ones you have in the other vessels. It's a special one. And if any of our listeners is doing research in that field, please reach out to me because I've always been fascinated by the fact that if you do an electron macroscopy section in the liver, you see fat bulbs or bubbles bulging into the stream of the sinusoidal blood flow along the hepatocytes. And I cannot other than think that this gives thrombus 
thrombocyte activation, release of cytokines right there, just from the mechanical differences of fat laden hepatocytes is causing in the liver. I think this is very fascinating and it's not studied well. It might hook up to some concepts we're seeing, you know, with hepatosmegaly or some things, but I'm convinced that this fat change of microvasculature in the liver has an effect for the patient. That's really interesting, but not well studied, huh? No, it's difficult to get hands-on blood cells directly in the liver. There are some studies that have tried to take portal vein blood or let's say liver vein blood. You can do that through access through the jugular vein, for example. It's difficult then to study systemic changes and say what's happening in the liver. And, and it's not well studied. Some animal models have uh, gone that way, but even there's not a lot of data. And I think there's lots of things we can learn about the liver vasculature and the endothelial lining there. So one more way in which the liver stores its own secrets. Huh? I fully agree. And I think what Sven was clear to propose was that the portal hypertension in fatty liver, which may be related to what Jean's talking about now, is different and may appear different to that that's developed in alcohol or in other causes of liver damage that cause portal hypertension. So there may be actually different types of portal hypertension being developed, which I've never really looked at. I deal with and treat people who have portal hypertension, but more from the physical side, the reassurance, the nursing side, never looked at the schematics of how it could be different. I wouldn't call it different types of portal hypertension, but I think the same pressure in a patient with NAFLD versus somebody else, liver disease, might impact the outcome a little different. So I think by the bottom line, what you're saying, if you measure actually HVPG as a surrogate of portal hypertension there, um, it's probably special. So, Jordan, what would the difference look like? It, 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 there are some studies that are saying that uh, even at lower pressures, you have more adverse outcomes in NASH, or you could say that the measurements you're taking are a little bit different compared to other etiologies when you then you look at outcomes. Again, addressing the variability you can have with HVPG between centers and the standardization of the exam has some limitations to that. But overall, there's a perception that, as Louis rightfully said, pressure you measure in NASH seems to be a little different uh, in terms of compared to other liver diseases. Okay. So, Louise, what are the talks that you covered was the Julius Clinical Talk, which as I was listening to you, I was thinking that that felt like it would have been of a piece in Barcelona because Barcelona was where we had folks from Benelux really carrying the ball for the importance of pri the role of primary care, meta metabolic disease, including NAFLD. And here, I guess they're Dutch, right? Utrecht, I think? Yeah, he was, Rick was certainly from Utrecht and he was cardiovascular background, not a hepatology background. But Julius Clinical is a research finder and a, a lot of the outcomes for what they're aiming to do with this 10,000 patient study is to identify patients in the community that should be accessing clinical trials for NASH because we know they're there. They just don't make it through in the numbers to get to clinical trials through centres. So what they're proposing to do as part of GRIP, which is their programme, is to do 10,000 fibre scans, 1,000 in 10 different countries in Europe. It doesn't include the UK and Ireland at the moment. And I don't think it's including Spain, but I may be wrong there. I just can't visualise the map in my head from seeing it. What they're proposing to do is more or less put Fibroscan where I think it should be personally before blood tests. So therefore, you've identified the ones who've got abnormal liver function. You then add to that the portfolio of people who have abnormal livers or poor liver health for some reason detected. And then you track them through the guidelines and the referral pathway that EASL and that suggest. It was good on lots of ways. We don't often 
often we have clinical guidelines. They're often very late to be implemented. We make recommendations. Do we always follow them? Do we have the money to put them in? Um, we can make these edits, but unless money comes down the pipeline, it's very difficult to give every GP access to Fibroscan to follow the easel guidelines or ASL guidelines. It's easy to write, but it's not as easy to implement. So it'll be very interesting to see what Julia's clinical do and whether they're costing that, how easy it was, what were the problems, what was the upskilling like. I think there's so much information you can get from a program like this that can really define whether or not these guidelines will work and how we can really put them in. Very interesting, Louise. There's a German saying where you say, Papier ist geduldig. Uh, its paper is uncomplaining. I mean, you can write down a lot of things. If it's not happening, it's not good for the patient. And I think that addresses the heart of what we wanted to achieve with INC Barcelona, the uh, innovations in NAFLD care, where we try to address that bridge. As an expert, we think liver disease should be worked up like that, but that's not happening in primary care. And we really got to bring reality into primary care and or into hepatology and kind of move it beyond what we are writing on paper. The GRIP on NASH program is one that's trying to do this on a research basis. And the second one, that's a little different. We've mentioned that one or twice before here. That's led by Per Jean out of Barcelona is the Liver Screen Consortium, where you actually go into primary care and screen directly or add in. And I think that's GRIP on NASH at, at its heart, add in another test and look for metabolic risk factors. You know, as we discussed multiple times, I think that's a good way forward. It's just the difficulty to see who's going to pay for the tests and what are we going to do with the patient subsequently. But we're getting there and we're, I think there are some answers to these questions and prevention is a very strong argument to address this. The interesting thing for the GRIP program is they're all high-risk patients. They've already got metabolic disease. They're the low-hanging fruit to bring in a Stevenism. So they're the low-hanging fruit we've talked about. They're the ones in the AGA guidelines. So they've got two or three or more metabolic disorders. They've got all of that. So it would be interesting also to see what the definite concentration is like in 10,000 high-risk patients. Really, what is the prevalence of NASH in that population? Is it as scary as we think it is? Um, or is it less so? But how much is just fat and no fibrosis? I don't know. This, these may answer some of the questions that we debate. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to preview International Nash Day. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. <laughs>